All right, it's 3.45, and you subjected yourself to a talk on cancer screening at 3.45 on, a, on an afternoon where you've kind of been traveling, I assume. And uh, So my name is Jeff Lehman, and I'm a family physician, and um, my background is uh, 10 years of working at a mission hospital in India, and then for the last 12 years I've been involved with resident education. I'm a residency program director in Peoria, Illinois. Uh, but I have um, uh, some disclosure. So I'm obviously not a cancer specialist. I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm a primary care doctor. Uh, I'm a primary care doctor who's very interested in cancer screening, especially making sure that for any screening test, uh, we understand uh, the benefits and harms of that. So uh, it's very likely uh, that someone in here in this room has known someone who has cancer or has had cancer themselves. And, uh, and even if you haven't, you probably have a pretty good sense of what a devastating disease this is. And so I want to be really sensitive to that because sometimes when I do this talk, people in that room have been uh, have a detect- had a detected cancer from a screening test and, and have very positive effects of some of the screening tests that I might not be so high on. So we're going to talk about that. So uh, this is kind of a clinical talk, but I do think and it, there are parts of it that are technical. Uh, but I think the overarching part of this, we will make it uh, uh, accessible to everybody. And, and the reason why uh, I think it's important to think about this, if you are interested at all in global health or medical missions, is so that you don't make the same mistakes that I made. And some of those mistakes were 22 years ago when my wife and I went to India and went out into the village and started seeing cancer of all kinds. We started thinking about, oh man, we've got to start doing all that stuff we do in the United States. We have to think about colonoscopies and mammograms and PSA testing and, and uh, you know, pap smears. Uh, and, and, and we ran into problems with that. And hopefully by the end of the lecture today, you're going to be able to tell me why we ran into problems with that. So um, I think all of us agree that cancer is a devastating illness. This past year, 11 million people in the world died in, in one year of cancer. That's the entire population of Kentucky and t- Tennessee together. So it's a, obviously a big problem, and another 19 million people developed cancer. So we know that it's a problem. So the goals today, I've been told I have to stay in this yellow box uh, because I'm being filmed, I think. So discuss the complexities of cancer screening and, um, and including the pros and cons. And some people are surprised. We'll talk about that. We're going to talk a little bit about what makes for a good screening test. And we're going to think a little bit about what are those things in the developing world where some of you may be thinking or maybe already serve or think about serving. Um, What are the biggest cancer burdens in those places and what screening tests are recommended and what screening tests are available. And then we're going to think a little bit about the future, what's coming. Okay, that's the roadmap for today. All right, we're going to start off. Um, this is a thing we're going to have a raise of hands. Early detection of cancer is a good thing. How many people agree? Okay. Uh, how many people disagree? Yeah, no one ever disagrees. How many people say depends? We got one, two, three hands there. So actually the right answer is the depends, and hopefully we'll talk a little bit about why. But, but all of you who voted yes, you're in good company. Uh, this was a study done in Journal of American Medical Association in 2004, and they screened huge numbers of just lay people in the, in the population, and they asked people uh, the same question I asked you, and 87% of everybody who they asked said absolutely uh, early detection of cancer and cancer screening is almost a good idea, 
And, and there was a, a, a big enthusiasm as well that 74% said that early detection of cancer saves lives most or all of the time. Okay, so uh, 80% of people who they talked to said that, so they were given a scenario. And the scenario was an 80-year-old person refuses, whatever, mammogram. And 80% of the people they populate said that person is being irresponsible. Okay? So in, in, our, in our world, uh, there is an unbounded enthusiasm uh, for screening for cancer. So we're going to talk about two cancers here at the beginning. One is cancer X. Okay? And so you have a healthy 55-year-old patient comes in and says, Hey, I've been reading about this cancer X and screening for it. And, uh, and so there was a study, this, these data is true about this cancer, that the five-year survival rate without screening is 69%. And the five-year survival rate with screening is 99%. Okay? So do you want to, this guy sitting in front of you, doctor, should I take this test? What do you think? Lots of nodding. Anyone disagree? Okay. Does this test save lives? What do you think? This can be interactive. Huh? Yeah. So, um, so, so what we found out that we're improving five-year survival rate. And I'm going to just put that away in your head because you hear a lot about cancer, about improving survival rates. We're going to put a peg in that. We'll come back to it, okay? So here's cancer B. Same guy next year comes in. He was reading in the newspaper. No one reads in the newspaper anymore. He was reading on his tablet some news article about cancer B. And he read, Doctor, the, what I found out was that the mortality, the risk of dying from cancer B over five years without a screening test, uh, two people die uh, out of every 1,000 people. And you know what? If I get the screening test, of all the people who get the screening test, only 1.6% or 1.6 people are going to die out of every 1,000. So, I mean, we're only saving, what, 0.4 lives out of 1,000. What do you think of that? Are you as enthusiastic? Which is better? Which test is better? The first one, the screening test for cancer X, or the screening test for cancer B? X. So uh, does this test save lives? The one we just talked about with the meager 0.4 per 1,000 people. Does it save lives? Yeah. For every, for every 2,000 people, you're saving one life. Okay. Would you recommend the second test to your patient? T- depends on what? Sure. Yeah, let's just say he doesn't have any risk factors. And so uh, we know that this test was only for people without risk factors. And so for every 2,000 people, you're going to save one life. Okay? So just put a peg in that, and we're going to think about this together. So I've already asked you this question, which screening test is better and I'm hopefully in the next couple slides going to show you that the second test is much better. And I'll tell you why. Okay? Here's another real quick question I want you to think about. Can cancer screening hurt people? Okay. I love that yes. Tell me what do you mean? Tell me a way a cancer screening can hurt someone. Sure. Yeah, the, t- the screening test itself can be complicated. 
Yeah. So the answer to this is uh, unresound yes. Uh, not all cancer screening tests are equal. Okay? Uh, screening with a colonoscopy is uh, very, very good. Screening with some other tests are not very good. They're not all equal. An improvement of five-year survival rate, I hope to show you in the next little bit here, is not enough. And so when you hear about it's going to improve five-year survival rates, really that means almost nothing. And I'm going to show you why. And can cancer screening hurt? You guys already got the answer for that. So here's, here's uh, four stages uh, of the kinds of cancer. The first one, oh, my pointer doesn't show up down there. The bottom, if you can't read it, says disease never detectable. So there are those tumors we have in our bodies that are just there our whole life and we'll, we'll never know we had them and we'll die without knowing we had them. The green line there is asymptomatic cancers, but you could find it if you screened for it. You, you know, yeah, uh, the yellow is it's symptomatic and it's potentially curable if you could find it. So that would be like a breast lump. Uh, or the top is metastatic and it's incurable. So it's too far gone. It's metastasized to your brain, to your liver. And, and you're never going to be able to cure it. Across the top, uh, these arrows are screening intervals. So whether it's every year when you get a mammogram or uh, every year when you get a PSA test or every 10 years when you get a colonoscopy, those are the screening intervals on the top. And so there's, there are tumors in our body that just would remain undetectable. Do you think you should screen for those? No, you're never going to know you had them. The second kind of cancer is the one that you pick up that was asymptomatic uh, and you detected it by screening, but if you were, if you could see into the future, you would realize that you would never ever know, you would never have had symptoms from that cancer, uh, and you would die from that. Uh, you would you would die from something else, not from the cancer. So, do you think you should screen for that? Yeah. So, actually, you know, in in Europe, they did a cadaver study, uh, thousands of cadavers, and they realized that 60% of those men who died from other causes had prostate cancer. Okay. So this, and, and when we do that, when we pick up these cancers, that's called overdiagnosis. Uh, it means that we're picking up things and we're treating people for things that may have never affected them in their life. Okay? So this kind of cancer, though, this is what we like to find early. Uh, because eventually, if you wouldn't have picked it up here in the asymptomatic phase, the thing doesn't work, uh, that it would uh, eventually become metastatic and hurt you. Uh, and that's screen-detectable cancer. And then, unfortunately, we all know that in between those 10-year intervals of getting screening for a colonoscopy, there are patients who come in and they show up with metastatic colon cancer that was never there before, and you can't really screen for those because those come up too quickly. And so these are the kind of cancers we're talking about, okay, that, we're, that we want to think about screen-detectable cancers. Now, I'm going to give you two concepts here. I don't care whether you memorize them, but I just want you to know. that So there are aggressive tumors on the top, and really indolent, slow-growing tumors on the bottom. And the slow-growing tumors, uh, from the time they started in your body until you could detect them with a screening test is about that long because the, they're slower, until they get symptoms is this long. So it means at any one time, if I screen a person for cancer, or a population for cancer, you're way more likely to pick up the slow-growing tumors that are not going to cause problem, and you're less likely to pick up the ones that are real aggressive that hurt you. And that's called length time bias. I don't care whether you remember that or not. Uh, but I just want you to know that there are things like this out here. So this is another really important concept. And again, I don't care if you remember the name, but there's five people in each of those. Let's say that's 5,000 and there's one red dot in the middle. And those are the people who have cancer. Okay? And we're going to, the top are people we're screening. Uh, and then the bottom are people uh, that they're just the control group. We're not screening. 
So we're not screening the bottom group and they go along and all of a sudden uh, that one out of five develops symptoms from whatever kind of cancer it was. And then, oh, doctor, I have this lump, I have this whatever. And so then they do diagnostic testing. They diagnose the person of having cancer. And then at some point in the future, that person dies. Okay? And that we call the survival time from the time we diagnose it until the time uh, that they die. So now we're screening. This is the group we're screening for that exact same kind of cancer. Uh, Well, because uh, we can screen and pick it up earlier, we find this cancer, we confirm the diagnosis, uh, and then at some point in the future, this patient dies. And for many kind of cancers that we screen for, not many, there are some that we screen for, uh, we're picking it up earlier. The survival time has doubled, tripled, uh, but the patient has still died at the same time. Okay? And so this is uh, why screening tests will often look like they're improving your survival time, but they don't actually help people live any longer. And that's called lead time. So one more endurance of this, and then we'll move past this concept. So without screening, we have 1,000 people who have this bad kind of cancer. Five years later, 40% of them, or 60% of them are dead. Only 40% are alive. So the five-year survival rate is 40%. Now we're going to start screening, just as like the top of the line that we did before. And with that screening, we not only find those 1,000 people with those bad cancers, we find 2,000 people who had all those other kind of tumors that would probably have died with and never found, uh, non-progressive cancer. And so, you know, five years later, well, those same 2,000 people are still alive. Uh, and, but now what is our survival rate? Our survival rate is 80%, our five-year survival rate. So this test has doubled our survival rate, but it hasn't really changed the outcome for any patient. Okay, and so this complicated concepts often, but I just want you to know that you have to be able to show mortality improvement to know that a screening test works. Okay, again, this is overdiagnosis because there are lots of false positives. So if improving five-year survival rate is not enough, what should a good screening test do? And it must be shown to reduce mortality. So actually, the second test that I told you about that no one was enthusiastic about, those are the same statistics for prostate cancer screening. Okay, Uh, and so we'll talk about whether that's a good screening test. But what do you think about if you're going to develop a screening test, what would you think is a great screening test? Very high sensitivity. Awesome. Yep. You'd love it to be specific. It'd be great if it was both. Yeah. What else? Yeah, it should be cheap, right? It shouldn't cost $8 million, right? What else? It should be safe. The test itself shouldn't hurt you, right? Maybe it's like you know tons of radiation or something to find this. That wouldn't be good. It should be accessible to everybody. And then one other thing is, you're going to hear me say again at the end, you should be able to do something about the cancer when you find it, right? So a lot of times people think about screening, especially in the developing world setting, hey, we're going to screen for brain tumors. Great, you found it. Now what are you going to do about it? And you have to think about that too, right? Can we actually treat what we're finding? Um, So this is an example. This is prostate cancer. I've already referenced this. Uh, And these are the recommendation guidelines. And so it's not recommended for or against people up until the age of 70. Uh, But all the statisticians who look at this say cancer screening for people over 70 is a really bad idea. Now, not everybody, uh, but the primary care doctors say that. So this is why. So we're going to screen all those little people up there. That's all the people who are getting a PSA test for, can- for prostate cancer screening. And of those 1,055 people we're going to do a PSA, 
we're going to find a, an elevated number in 100 to 120 of those, and we're going to tell them, oh, you, you actually have prostate elevated, and we're going to do testing and everything else, and it was a false positive. So they actually really didn't have anything. And we're going to diagnose 110 people who actually have prostate cancer, and 60% of those, or 60 of those people, are actually going to have complications. They'll have an infection from a prostate biopsy, or they'll have a prostatectomy and, and, and either get infected, or maybe they'll have erectile dysfunction or urinary incontinence, and so they're going to have complications. And out of that full cohort, four or five are going to die, and you will save one life in every 1,055 people from screening. Now, we don't think about that, right? Uh, but there's a lot of people who are affected by screening tests. Uh, I still think that we should be talking to patients about this. What about breast cancer, right? We're getting, you know, the NFL is going to very soon start wearing the bright red or the bright orange or pink uh, shoes and ribbons and everything on them and promoting breast cancer screening. So for every 1,000 women screened with a mammogram over the age of 50, I believe in mammograms, so just getting that out there. But I just want to say I'm not, it's not the greatest test in the world, between 500 and 650 will have one false alarm, means that they find a lump. Oh, we have to do more investigation. Uh, three to four will be overdiagnosed and will actually have a lumpectomy or um, uh, a, uh, a mastectomy. It was overdiagnosed. That tumor would have never grown into anything else. And somewhere between 0.3 and 2.2 women out of every 1,000 will avoid a cancer death. So this is... This is test B that you guys weren't very enthusiastic about. That's the same statistics for mammography. And we have to think about how much does it cost to do this for everybody and what is a psychological cost. And so what do you think I mean by that, psychological cost? Absolutely. It's real, and it really affects people's lives. There's, they've done studies on women who've been told, like, oh, you have a lump, uh, we need to do some more investigation. They'll have a biopsy, and they follow them up five and ten years later. The amount of anxiety in that population compared to the other population is much higher, just about their overall health, not just even about breast cancer. So it can harm individuals being labeled. Uh, overdiagnosis can uh, lead to overtreatment, and then what are you doing? You're shifting resources in that place away from people who could use it. It can affect your whole health system fiscally. Maybe you're not doing antibiotics for kids or doing breast cancer I mean, uh, a breastfeeding education for people because you're taking that money and putting it towards treating cancers. And it draws people's attention away from other more important socioeconomic causes of ill health. And the cost of saving one quality-adjusted life here from prostate cancer costs almost $200,000, uh, which is double what we think is good uh, medical statistics for any other cancer. So you think about prostatectomy. Oh, sorry, I don't know why this is duplicated. Uh, so of all the treatments, there's lots of downsides here. This is just for prostate cancer as an example. Uh, and then the other thing about prostate cancer, you know, we're supposed to be doing shared decision-making with any patient, whether you do a mammogram or a colonoscopy. We're getting to the global health context here in a second, I promise. Uh, but they asked doctors, like, how many of you just ordered tests on patients and didn't tell them you were ordering it? Uh, and 25% of doctors ordered a PSA screening test on a patient and just put, lumped it in with their other blood work without talking to them about potential harms. That's really bad, actually. And so uh, we need to be making sure that we're doing shared decision-making. So screening means we're looking at average-risk people who don't have a family history, who are asymptomatic. Uh, and whatever you learn about screening, uh, just realize you're going to probably relearn it in five years because statistics are constantly changing about this. Um, and just really cautious about ad adopting guidelines in settings where they were not developed without being really critical. 
And this leads to the question of, uh, we have the ability to screen. We can do this genetic testing or we can do whatever uh, versus should we be screening? Um, And just to know that there are harms. So this is the global world, the whole world. uh, And the top is number of cases of cancer and the bottom is deaths. You probably can't read that writing, uh, but the, the, the one that's the worst, anyone can see what that is? That's breast cancer, right? And next is cervical cancer. Uh, obviously no men in either one of those. Blue is men and red is women. Uh, but then after that, you might be surprised to know the next biggest cancer burden in the world is oral cancer. What do you think that is? Yeah, tobacco chewing, beetle nut chewing, smoking. Uh, then we have lung cancer, stomach cancer, and colorectal cancer are the top ones. And so this is an article looking at the impact of screening in the world. And orange is breast. And so you can see that breast cancer in most middle and low-income countries is a huge thing. And then yellow is uh, cervical cancer is a leading cause of death globally. And you can kind of see where those things land. Um, you get into more Western countries, lung cancer is a, is a big one. Anyone know... We've talked about all this and what we can do. The WHO makes recommendations about cancer screening. Currently, they only recommend one cancer screening test. The WHO does. Does anyone know what that is? Yes. How? Not with a pap smear. Huh? No, actually with visual inspection of acetic acid. So, right, so you can look at the cervix. You put vinegar on it. If there's cancer, it will turn white like when you do a colposcopy. Uh, because no one, there's not enough labs in the world, there's not enough pathologists in the world to read pap smears. And so visual inspection with acetoacid is, is the only cancer screening. And so 350, 340,000 women died from cervical cancer this past year. And it's projected, you can see there, to be almost a half a million people by the year 2040. 91% of all cervical cancer cases in the world live in low- and middle-income countries. How many of you work uh, in the developing world or in low- and middle-income countries? Yeah, I mean, you've done this then, right? A woman comes in with vaginal bleeding, you do a pelvic exam, and then you can just feel tumor all the way down the vaginal sidewalls and this huge mass tumor uh, that was never able to be, you know, and now it's too late. There's nothing to do. So this is the only cancer screening recommended by the WHO, and it's the visual inspection of acid. If in a country you can do HPV testing in a cost-effective way, then that is worth doing. And you can treat that, right, with thermal ablation in most places. Cryotherapy is a little harder in some developing countries, and LEAP is out of the question in most. But in Tamil Nadu, in a state of India, they actually, from one single round of just putting vinegar on a woman's cervix and looking at it through a speculum, they reduce mortality by 35% just by doing that one-time screening in a woman's life. Now, we've been talking about the stuff we do here in the U.S. reduces mortality by 05 Right out of every thousand, we're talking about a 35% reduction in mortality just from putting vinegar in a speculum. A different study showed if you can do more than one round of screening, you improve your benefit to 50% reduction in mortality, dying, not just five-year survival rates. Breast cancer screening, unfortunately, this is not nearly as good, right? And that's why the WHO doesn't recommend this because early detection um, self-exams uh, don't have never been shown to d- reduce mortality. Usually by the time a woman can find uh, the tumor, uh, it's, it, you're, it's too far gone to, to make a mortality benefit. No studies have ever shown that self-detection has ever been linked with reduction in mortality. And the problem is, is that in India and in Nigeria, can you get a mammogram? Probably. 
Uh, I'm sure there are. But we're not talking here about one person getting one test. We're talking about screening a population of people. Uh, and mammograms are expensive. And the technology is expensive. And I loved, I don't remember who said uh, accessibility, right? Whatever screening test we do should not just be for the rich and famous, uh, but it should be for the people on the ground who are really going to be suffering the most from this. So the other one uh, that is debatable in the literature that the WHO hasn't, but if you live in a country where oral cancer is high, a single one-time looking in someone's mouth can actually do this. So they did this in India looking at 13 very densely populated villages, and they cut them in half, and they trained lay health workers to go around and look inside of someone's mouth. And they were just looking for white spots or leukoplakia. And once they were found, they were sent and then uh, biopsy. Uh, and what they found out was this went over, uh, you can see the duration of time here from 95 to 2013. Three rounds of looking in the mouth in this particular study uh, reduced mortality by 35%. Again, they we're talking about dying, not just picking up a, a tumor in someone's mouth. And so if you do live in a country where there's a lot of oral cancer, uh, visual inspection of the mouth when they come in for their exams is probably a worthwhile and cost-effective thing. So the WHO has given us some guidelines now. This is just released at the end of last year that a screening program should, rec- should respond to recognized need. It should not just be your pet little thing that your grandpa died of this certain cancer and now you're going to bring the cancer screening into Afghanistan. Um, but it should respond to a recognized need At the very beginning, before you ever start, you should figure out who you're trying to help and say what your goals are. There should be scientific evidence that it works. And what does that mean? Not five-year survival rates, but you're always going to ask, does cancer screening reduce mortality? That's If you walk out of here with that's all you remember, that's really good. And you should be educating people on it, right? How to order the, who should be ordering the test and who can get it, and what you're going to do, how it's going to be happening at a programmatic level nationwide or in your villages or in your uh, states. Um, and then there should be quality assurance, making sure that the mammogram machines are working. This is really important, and especially we forget about this in low- and middle-income countries. Uh, just because people are poor doesn't mean that they're dumb uh, and that we should be having informed consent discussions. Uh, I understand the complexities of doing that in places where people just want you to tell them what to do. Uh, but I still think we need to be informing people of potential harms of screening. And it should be equitable, right? Whatever screening program we, we already talked about, this shouldn't just be re- benefiting the rich. Um, and, it, and overall, the benefit of screening should outweigh the harm. Can I just highlight that? The WHO also acknowledges that screening can cause harm. They agreed with you. Congratulations. Uh, be a, there are databases, national databases. This is the Cancer Screening 5 database by the WHO where you can look at and pro- each country is pumping in their data into this to find out uh, for the future what cancer screenings are helpful. So if you, this is a really kind of a, you can go down the rabbit hole on this website a lot, but it's very interesting. So it's kind of depressing. We're to the end of this time, and we found out all this cancer is killing people, and the WHO only recommends screening for cervical cancer and maybe looking at someone's mouth and all the rest of this stuff in low- and middle-income countries. There's not much to do. How depressing. But there is hope uh, for the future. And so as AI uh, becomes, artificial intelligence becomes more and more accessible and more cheap, um, uh, it can read images. And so if you can have a breast ultrasound, and already there are some models being tested out there of breast ultrasound, very cheap, accessible, it's not like a mammography machine, with artificial intelligence reading those images and picking up tumors, 
Uh, in many radiology studies, I hope you're not a radiologist, but AI is sometimes, in many studies, better than radiologists at picking up things on scans. Uh, in our clinic, uh, that's an indigent clinic in the United States, uh, it's not cancer screening, but we have people look at a camera, it takes a picture of their eyes, it uploads it to the web, it compares it with 300,000 images and tells us whether they have retinal disease from diabetes, and it costs almost $2 or $3 for everybody, and a lot less than the ophthalmologists are charging to screen for retinal disease. So AI is going to be something for the future. In the other, my wife works in an OBGYN office, and so this is a huge uh, thing that's happening now, right, of blood tests and everything else to screen for tumor DNA or, or urine uh, or stool, and that's like the Cologuard. Uh, you know, that's a little bit of a different thing, but, you know, these DNA tumor markers that we're being able to do uh, with PCR testing, this is something that in the next five years is probably going to be very, very accessible in low- and middle-income countries because these tests can be mass-produced really cheaply, and so there's a lot of hope here. Uh, for some of these DNA markers that you can do, uh, just simple kits for screening for, for different kinds of cancers. So what do you, I'm curious from you guys, what do you see in the countries where you live and what kind of cancer screening is happening if you are working overseas or have experience working overseas and what are your frustrations in this area? Yeah. I mean, how cheap is vinegar? Yeah. I mean, the problem is, is that you have to then have transport medium. You have to store those specimens. They have to have a pathologist read them. I mean, it, pap smears are not the answer for screening cervical cancer in the world. I think eventually, once we start doing HPV testing, mm-hmm. I mean, if you can detect HPV, you're, you're going to be able to detect cervical cancer over time. But in the meantime, you've given us a viable and easy way to yeah. screen out the ones that need for What are the kind of problems do you run into? Anyone here? Or questions? Yeah. yeah. China, they, so they do a lot of cervical cancer screening. They do have the passive HPV testing. Um, and they're trying to get the number of cervical deaths down below four, less than four per thousand, maybe it is, or 10,000 right now. But anyway, so there, there is a lot of push towards uh, the HPV vaccine there and kind of frustrating me though it's, it's very expensive and so it's very hard for everybody to get it you know it's the accessibility issue as well. okay so the HPV testing costs people I mean HPV vaccine yeah, costs people yeah it's not a free thing so yeah so that's uh, that's kind of the frustrating, one of the frustrating things but we're, we're able to get it in our clinic and help people access it but the cost is a factor yeah yeah, HPV vaccine is going to be a deal breaker if we can ever make it accessible to the world's population, right? I mean, you're talking about a half a million people dying a year in a couple of years of, of cervical cancer. And it's cervical cancer for those of you who are not clinical. I don't know. Does anyone here know of any cervical cancer that happens without HPV? It's almost nil, right? It all comes from that infection. That's what I was going to comment. If you see the abnormality on the cervix, you know it's going to be Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it is labor-intensive, but there have been a lot of studies in the developing world of training 
non-clinical, even illiterate people, to be women, to be able to do this in clinics. And so you just show them, you know, several specimens, and you can just train them, and they're going to feel a lot more comfortable uh, with someone, uh, a female, doing that for them. And the uptake is going to be a lot higher than if you have a guy in there uh, doing that. And if, if you're in the Muslim world, I mean, that would never happen, right? You're going to have to have some solution that's gender-related. That's great. Great to hear. Okay. Um, so we're going to walk out of here, and this is what I want your take-homes to be. Okay? Cancer screening is complicated. If you walk out here and don't remember anything else, and just realize that it's not as easy as it looks uh, when someone starts recommending a screening test for someone. And your mind should be going to ask questions. And you can just Google this. You can Google, does mammography reduce mortality? And you can see statistics. So any test you're seeing people recommend, does it reduce mortality? It's very complicated. Oops, sorry. Uh, don't screen for something unless you can do something about what you're screening for, right? Um, and guidelines are constantly being updated, so keep looking. And there's a lot of hope for this. I've been down on prostate cancer screening in the past, but there's been something really good happening in the United States in the fact that most uh, urologists realize, are starting to realize that most of the tumors we're picking up with PSA screening are minnows. They're not the sharks that kill people, right? And so there's, you know, you're trying to catch the sharks, and, and in catching the char- sharks, you catch thousands of minnows. That's all the other people in gray who were on there who had false positives and everything else. And so urologists are way more likely now to just sit and wait. MRI, Im- MRI is very expensive, but just imaging and following PSAs over time and looking at their trajectory, and they're way less likely to rush people doing prostatectomies. And so if the treatment's not being as aggressive, uh, there's a lot of hope for that in the future. And just realize that there are these biases that affect cancer screening, lead time bias, length bias, and then also uh, just socioeconomic biases, right, because it ends up being the more educated who end up seeking care the most and get, have the most opportunity to access screening tests. And then just important that shared decision-making is important. And, and I know if I would have been here 20 years ago and heard somebody talk about shared decision-making with my patients in India, I would have been rolling my eyes. Because uh, I think uh, historically in many of these countries, the doctor is the boss and the doctor needs to tell me what to do. And when you start asking people which of these three options, they just stare at you with a blank stare and they tell you, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. But I think increasingly as younger people come up in many of these countries, there is a little bit more education and some awareness Uh, and that we should be at least talking to them about potential harms. Okay. We are done way earlier than I thought I'd be. But uh, any other questions or comments about your own experience in areas or or with this topic? Yeah, no, yeah, so most places, even um, when you look at the highest 
percentage or the highest number of places that are treating or what they're treating with. It's actually cryo is accessible in some places, but liquid nitrogens can be pricey and hard to transport, and and so actually thermal ablation uh, can help. So it's almost like a leap machine, uh, but it's a we don't use it in the United States. Uh, but you're using heat uh, to burn and ablate the cervix, much like cryotherapy does. Uh, in a lot of uh, countrywide programs in the developing world, thermal ablation is the number one treatment. Cryotherapy is great, and we know that it works if you can get liquid nitrogen. Yeah. Any other questions or comments? Okay. One other thing is you talk to people about this. Uh, one time, uh, many, many years ago, probably 25 years ago, when I was giving a very rudimentary version of this talk that's been evolving in my mind over time, uh, it was actually giving it for a medical education conference at the de- medical staff at our hospital in Oklahoma. And this guy stood up cr- trembling, angry, and crying and, and yelled at me. I was a resident. Uh, this, you know, PSA screening saved my life. How dare you ever... Uh, you know, cast any shade on this thing that saved my life. And so I think we need to be sensitive because people's experience with cancer is, so we need to be sensitive as we talk about these things because these are diseases that affect real people and and cause a lot of suffering and a lot of distress in people's lives. Okay. All right. It was good hanging out with you guys. Be up here lingering in the front if anyone has comments. I love to learn from the audience. So if you have a a perspective about this, I would love to hear it. Oh, yes, you're supposed to fill out the evaluation forms. We're back to paper this year. That's good.